The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, John. Thank you. And yourself? Not too bad, Father. It's good to see you. Yes, great to be back again for another week. Um, Father, By the way, before we start, we'd prayers? like to ask for some prayers. You're right, son. Right on. Christ, please continue prayers for Father Skirke's recovery. Uh, please continue the prayers for Joseph Percher's recovery. Um, we also have a number of uh, others who are injured. Please remember uh, uh, Jimmy McNally, I understand, was just injured today in an accident, perhaps at work. And uh, Jimmy is undergoing treatment at the hospital right now. I just got that word just before we started the program. So... Please keep uh, Jimmy and Floor McNally in your prayers and their family. And uh, there are a goodly number of other dear souls we know who are suffering, but uh, I don't know that they want to be named uh, publicly, but God knows who they are. And if you pray for them, God will bless them and you at the same time for your charity. So mm -hmm. I commend them all to your prayers. Okay. Thank you, Father. Um, several current events we wanted to uh, mention on tonight's program, Father, and the, the first one. Um, it's kind of been in the news a lot uh, everywhere, all over the world. Uh, just a matter of days ago, Queen Elizabeth uh, II, Queen of the uh, United Kingdom, she died at the age of 96 after reigning uh, over 70 years, I believe. Um, there's There's been um, a lot of uh, very nice things said about her, a lot of uh, uh, great tributes made to Queen Elizabeth. And uh, some of our viewers wanted to know, Father, if you had any reflections on her passing, if you shared uh, some of the same sentiments that have been uh, put out. Well, I did mention this event, uh, the event of her death uh, in the sermons I gave on Sunday in Cleveland at St. Teresa of the Child Jesus Church in Cleveland area, or Parma, actually. And um, also at Our Lady of Peace Church in Boynton Beach, Florida. <clears throat> I had mentioned this because the, the gospel... For the Sunday seemed to lend itself in that direction, uh, the choice of serving God or mammon, of serving two masters. And uh, I know world leaders have, uh, with one voice, risen up to praise Elizabeth II and her 70-year reign. But uh, Catholics have a very different perspective than uh, the perspective of the world and those who think in a worldly fashion. Catholics cannot think the same way they do. They have to think in terms of uh, God's will and God's judgment. And again, the choice we have between serving mammon and serving God. And uh, we know that, uh, for our faith, we know that uh, Elizabeth uh, was created by God. Uh, her soul was created at uh, one instant in time. And that soul now has lived a long life. Uh, enjoyed a great deal of power in the world, and now has gone to God for judgment. 
And as a Catholic, I have to think in terms of um, sinners needing justification and the grace of God to be saved. And so we do pray for the soul of Elizabeth. You know, she doesn't appear before God as a queen. Uh, she doesn't appear before God with a royal scepter of her own or a crown on her head. She appears as a creature of God who, uh, again, existed to know him and to love him and to serve him in this world so as to be happy with him in the next. Um, so the, the question, the one question that concerns us is, did she in fact know, love, and serve God in this world so as to be happy with him in the next? Um, now, you know, as far as judging her soul, none of us can do that. Our role is to pray, and I'm sure we have all prayed for her salvation. That's, we pray that she received the graces and cooperate with the graces she needed to save her soul. Those graces had to come from God. Um, as far as the condition of her soul, none of us can judge that. That is the prerogative of uh, her Creator and her Redeemer, who alone can say to her, Come, ye blessed of my Father, and take possession of the kingdom, or depart from me, you accursed, into the everlasting fires of hell. Only he can make that judgment for a soul, each individual soul, and someday yours and mine, too. <clears throat> so we do not try to usurp that power from him. Um, now, if we look at, at the deeds, though, if we look at the actions of people, well, not only can we judge those, we must judge those, because our Lord has told us the difference between right and wrong very clearly. <clears throat> we read the Sermon on the Mount, from which last Sunday's Gospel was taken, many of the Gospels are, and our Lord is actually instructing us about right and wrong, you know, what, it is ne what is necessary to uh, be faithful to God and uh, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And uh, when we look at the actions or inactions of any individual, we can see that they worked to good or uh, to ill. Uh, we know that Queen Elizabeth became queen shortly after the end of World War II, and um, she reigned for about 70 years, as you say. And we look at the condition of the people she governed, the nations she governed, all during that 70 years. We see the progress or the deterioration of England as a nation. And again, as Catholics, we're concerned about the relationship with God, okay, of the nation of England. And we, saw, we find things that are very unsettling. I mean, stay the least, you know, Catholic to have to find it very unsettling there. We find that the English nation has declined quite uh, dramatically during those 70 years. And she's declined, the English nation has declined uh, dramatically in terms of her laws. Uh, uh, you know, giving latitude to abortion, uh, promoting um, so-called same-sex unions, the LGBTQ+, plus, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, program. <clears throat> um, so many, many laws have come year after year after year, come, come out of Parliament. And one could say, well, that's the work of Parliament, that's not the work of the monarch. But the fact is <clears throat> that, as I understand it, as I'm told, as I've read, the monarch has, still has a certain authority over what is sent to her from Parliament. And she can stop it. She can actually, I don't know if she has actual, absolute veto power, 
but she can't oppose it, and Elizabeth never did. All of these laws promoting abortion, promoting uh, deviant sexuality, and all kinds of perversions have simply been passed into law uh, in England without any, uh, any apparently even gesture of protest from the crown, from the monarch. And so, yes, there definitely is a certain responsibility there. Uh, our Catholic morality tells us that there is a certain responsibility there, and it's a terrible responsibility to have. Um, you know, not only did Elizabeth have to govern the nation, but she had to govern the Church of England, because uh, Henry VIII, her predecessor in the, crown, the throne of England, uh, usurped for himself the, the title of the sovereign, you know, uh, over the, the head of the Church of England, uh, church, supposedly the Church of Jesus Christ, our Lord himself, over the, over the souls of the Englishmen, you know, over the land of England. <clears throat> and um, uh, we find that she accepted that title, and uh, she, for all those years, was actually choosing the bishops. I understand that she had a certain number of men proposed to her, and then she would choose one. But, you know, the choices that she made certainly affected the, uh, the lot of the, uh, the Church of England. And again, can we say that that has somehow prospered in faith and hope and charity during this time? Or has there been a very evident and tragic decline? Well, a, from the Catholic point of view, there's definitely been a, a tragic decline. One might say, well, of course, you know, no layman or laywoman can be the head of the Church uh, of Jesus Christ. It's a true, true Church of Jesus Christ in England. A monarch might declare himself or herself to be the head of the church, but that's a complete fiction, and uh, is destined to end badly. And in this case, it certainly has been, uh, it's been bad. Yeah. It's been bad for faith, faith in England, okay? And, um, but Elizabeth accepted this title. So whether governing the church of England or governing, governing, uh, the land and the people of England is a secular way, uh, the country certainly has uh, suffered. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I'm, talking, I'm not talking about material prosperity. That's another question. We, we see how that has gone, too. We're talking about morality. And we're talking about faith, matters of faith and morals. Okay? In the eyes of a, of a Catholic Church, the real Catholic Church, not the Francis Catholic Church. In the eyes of the real traditional Catholic Church, England has not prospered under this reign, but has suffered a great deal of damage. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an enorm enormous responsibility to appear before the judgment seat of God, carrying that on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And uh, one might say, well, you know, Elizabeth uh, can't be held responsible for all of that. Okay, granted. But that is not to say she can't be res held responsible for any of that. Yeah. But she did have a certain amount of power and authority and even in prestige. And that was not used to protect uh, the souls of Englishmen from having their faith marauded and having their morality degraded. Yes. Um, you look at uh, those who were knighted uh, and who were honored by her. And uh, I, I had mentioned that Mick Jagger was uh, one of those. 
I understand that she would not personally bestow the knighthood on him because she did not think that he was appropriate or suitable for it. But she did bestow the knighthood on Elton John. She made him Sir Elton Hercules John, knight of the realm, right? <clears throat> and uh, in fact, he was just paying tribute to her upon death. And that would not have happened if she had opposed in any way the homosexual agenda in England. Why are the, the leaders of nations rising up with a, you know, in, in, in one great crescendo of praise for her? It is because she did not oppose the corruption that they all favor. She did not oppose this. Um, they, they praise her style, they praise her wit, uh, they praise many things about her, which from a natural point of view might be truly admirable. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, insofar as they favor this agenda of liberalism and modernism and corruption, moral corruption, they don't find anything about Elizabeth's uh, voice or tenure that would uh, be problematic for them yeah. to find praiseworthy. She was very much in accord with and um, willing to all, let all of that happen and even to, um, uh, as I say, lend a certain prestige behind it by the awarding of knighthoods and so on uh, to people who stood for this corruption. Uh, be almost like paragons of corruption, you know, in the way they live their lives uh, from the standpoint of Catholic morality. So in terms of our, our Catholic faith, we have to find this to be a, a rather tragic a uh, rather tragic uh, uh, monarch, a rather tragic reign. And uh, we can only pray for mercy for her soul, and we do, because that's where our interest is. Our interest in, is in the good of her soul. And those who are praising her uh, endlessly, um, their praise does absolutely not one whit of good for her. It, it is of absolutely no benefit to her whatsoever. They can praise her, uh, you know, as, as the day is long, but their praise does not benefit her in any way. Uh, the only thing that can be of any benefit is those who care enough about her, her soul to pray for her. And um, I would say that we, we should do that. Yeah. Certainly, as, as Catholics, we, yeah. we uh, should remember her in our prayers. Uh, because there's enormous responsibility, and we ask that God, uh, that God rescue her from that, from that responsibility. Mm -hmm. And Father, what about the uh, the King in Charles, the incoming monarch yeah. son? I guess uh, there's some Charles. concerning things about him as well. Oh yeah, well he he is from the outset a uh, totally in lockstep with the Great Reset of the World Economic Forum. He's one of the leading voices for it. He was one of the inaugurators of it, one of the primary movers of it from the beginning. Uh, with climate change and all the other stuff, trying to get the carbon taxes in place and all the rest, the whole, the whole program of the globalists and the, uh, the, uh, the world uh, domination of, uh, well, essentially what amounts to communism. But it goes beyond communism because it is really a cult. And this is something we have to realize. We're dealing with uh, the World Economic Forum is not just a group of uh, leftists. 
It really is a leftist cult. It takes on a kind of religious veneer. Um, and as a, as a, as a quasi-religion. But, you know, you'd expect the powers of hell to spawn something that is not just a political movement. Whatever the powers of hell touch, they're going to try to um, give it the, the flavor, the aroma, the aura of a, of a religion. Uh, because the powers of hell want control of the soul, not just the body. If there's one thing that Harari and the rest of the spokes creatures for the World Economic Forum have said, we, we must take control of the soul. Not that they believe in the soul, but we must take control of the inner man, right? His thoughts. We must take control of his actual thoughts. Now, that's, that's Satan speaking there, clearly. Okay. And uh, so that gives it the, the uh, import and the impact of a kind of uh, religion, uh, not to tie us to God, which is the meaning of religion, religare, but to tie us to Satan himself, uh, who wants to extend his kingdom of hell into, into the world today and to make uh, this kind of an annex of hell. And he's doing a good job of it. Uh, I fear King Charles is going to be a servant of that cause and uh, will use his uh, influence now as the a king of England uh, to uh, further that cause. They've gained, uh, not only, they haven't gained an ally, he always was their ally, but the, their ally has gained a lot of power now. And they're going to use that, they know how to use that power. Um, it's curious, you know, Elizabeth II uh, does trace her lineage back to the Boleyn family. You know, Anne Boleyn, who was committing adultery with Henry, uh, who became pregnant, was going to have a child, and that is what uh, precipitated Henry finally moving to get rid of Catherine, right, of Aragon, because she had to be gone uh, so that when uh, Anne Boleyn delivered, that child would be recognized. Uh, as she was recognized as his queen, that the child she had would be recognized, um, would be recognized as an heir to the throne. And uh, it, the, the story that I'm getting, and I, I believe there's some truth to it, is that uh, Elizabeth II was somehow uh, actually um, a descendant not of Anne Boleyn, but Mary Boleyn, her sister. I'm not sure how, I haven't actually seen that graphically portrayed. But this is what I understand from some of the British conoscentes of this. Conoscentes, uh, I guess I would say. But, uh, but also there is a, a certain um, um, effort. Actually, it, it seems to have some credibility to it that Elizabeth actually is a direct descendant of Mohammed also. That in her lineage there in Mohammed, there was... Through the British involvement in, in Africa and the, in the Near East, um, that uh, there is uh, some of the blood of Mohammed, you know, Mohammed in her veins too. Um, and Charles, well, he, uh, he himself has demonstrated a kind of affinity with Islam, a real re re high regard for Islam. This is somewhat uh, troubling for a British monarch, you know. So, uh, kind of uh, makes the voice of G.K. Chesterton, the flying in, ringing in our ears, as to his kind of prophecy, the future of England, 
um, <clears throat> and also Hilaire Belloc. You know, these two men, they saw something coming that was very sinister. And so we can read what they wrote a hundred years ago and, uh, and marvel at uh, their prescience in seeing the way England was going. Uh, truly a, an exercise worthy, worthy of the time. <clears throat> so, uh, poor England. Uh, you know, if we're going to pray for the soul of Elizabeth, I think we have to pray ten times as much for the people of England, for the victims mm -hmm. of all of this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, yeah few, few, few nations have suffered as much as the English uh, over this whole a totalitarian globalist program mm -hmm. with COVID and everything else. Yeah. And uh, to this day, they're, they're suffering enormously under the heel of this totalitarianism. Yeah. Father, I think uh, some of our viewers, perhaps maybe some of our newer viewers, might be um, a bit surprised to hear you, um, you know, say these, these things about Elizabeth because the, uh, the Novus Ordo Catholic Church um, always, is, is, is my understanding, we're, we're always... Uh, got along great with uh with, with mm -hmm. queen elizabeth and and their entire family and i know um queen elizabeth and john paul ii were apparently very close and i've even heard this this story i don't know if there's any truth to it at all but apparently i think um after the uh after the death of pope pius the 12th apparently um again i don't know if there's any truth to the story but queen elizabeth was was impressed by uh what she saw from pope pius the 12th and she actually um, was interested in, in converting, mm. and uh, I guess it, uh, perhaps it was John the 23rd at the time, apparently the story that I've heard, he told her, don't worry about it, it's not, not mm. worth it, told her not to convert, <clears throat> um, to Catholicism, not to even express any interest in it. Typical Novus Ordo approach, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, there, there are actually volumes written with regard to the role of the British crown, notably Elizabeth in the choosing of Bergoglio. As Francis too. And, Curious yeah. connection. And we've, we've seen Francis pay all kinds of great, wonderful Oh, he's praised to, for great um, faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. called her a, a model. Being, and, having Francis praise you for your faith <laughs> should be a, a real warning. Uh, that should be a shot across the bow. Yeah. That you're on the wrong track. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. Okay. Um, well, then, Father, maybe we could uh, yeah. next bring things back uh, to the States and um, our own uh, leadership here, if you could call it that. Um, there was a, um, a speech given by Biden uh, recently, I think it's been a couple of weeks now, that um, made a lot of, a lot of headlines, um, where he gave the speech at Philadelphia, a very, um, I don't know, provocative speech where he um, condemned Donald Trump and his supporters and the MAGA Make America Great Again, uh, Americans and the whole Republican Party, and how uh, they are th they're a threat to our nation, they're a threat to democracy, um, all, all kinds of very outrageous, um, divisive things like that. Uh, I know you, you wanted to make just a couple comments on that speech of his father. Well, I don't know how many of our viewers saw that. I expect that some of them did. If they didn't see the speech, actually, when it was given on September 1st, I guess it was. Uh, I'm sure they saw clips of it. It is extremely sinister. It, it, is a, it, is, it is a Nazi propaganda film featuring a de deranged demagogue named President Biden, uh, Joseph Biden, uh, who appears at the podium there 
Um, well, what can I say? It sounds like a, a deranged demagogue. It sounds like Adolf Hitler. It's actually it was on the the uh, anniversary of one of these great Hitlerian diatribes, and uh, what. Um, Biden had to say might well have been taken as a page right out of Hitler's own speech. Um, it has been likened to a Stalinist uh, call for the purge of the uh, the wreckers, you know, as he used to call them, those who would oppose him, anyone who would oppose him. Um, there, are the Democratic Party members have doubled down on Biden's speech, which condemned uh, Donald Trump and those who supported the Make America Great Again movement, if you want to call it that, uh, all of them were condemned uh, by Biden as threats to our democracy, threats to our nation. It was clear that he was setting them up for uh, basically persecution yeah. to justify um, government persecution of those who would be supporters of Donald Trump. And uh, even perhaps... Uh, implicitly calling upon his um, um, his minions, uh, Antifa and uh, and so on, to attack those who would support, you know, uh, make America great again effort there. Um, that they are a fair game in our society because they are enemies, they're treasonous, and they have to be treated as such. And um, the whole setting was uh, really dystopian. Uh, that's a that's, word is a poor choice of words because it doesn't even begin to describe. Um, but, you know, you, you think about a demagogue and you think about what uh, a, a demagogue would do, a deranged demagogue would do. He'd walk out on the stage, he'd have military presence as they had two uh, Marines uh, at attention there. Uh, certainly they had no place being there. There's no precedent, as I understand, for it. Them being there as though they were somehow, um, well, I mean, you know, he's told he's told the American people that that those who would oppose him with their guns uh, can are no match for the United States military. So he's actually threatened people who oppose him and his program with the uh, the night the the power of the United States military coming against them. He's threatened them with that. Um, is this not treason? Is this not treasonous? How is it not treasonous <clears throat> for a president to uh, to uh, basically uh, threaten his political rivals this way? Um, but as you know, uh, Tom, the the the, uh, the set darkened behind him, leaving only the the silhouettes of the of the military of the of the men standing there, and turned blood red. And during the course of his speech, uh, the scenery, whatever could be lit up behind him, was lit up in blood red. Um, it was so disturbing. Uh, it looked like some scene from hell, really. And, um, I mean, all we needed was uh, the horns on the head of uh, President Biden, and we, we would, it would have been like an address from hell itself. Uh, that some of the leftist media tried to tone it down by... Uh, washing out the red and making it pink. I mean, it was clear that they, they, were, they were caught doing it. Uh, they were trying to somehow uh, lessen the just the overall wickedness in this and the, the menace of this to the American people. Now, since then, 
Uh, President Biden has shown that he intends to follow through with his threats. Uh, not only was Trump, uh, Trump's own uh, residence, Mar-a-Lago, raided um, uh, some you know weeks ago, but now the FBI is going, checking off its list and raiding the residences of his supporters. Clearly, uh, what can you say? Uh, the work of a of a demagogue, totalitarian uh, maniac, <laughs> and people are actually seeing this. The American people, I understand, the majority of them actually see now uh, what what goes by the name of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, has become actually Biden's terrorist police force, internal police force, uh, to uh, intimidate, to um, not only threaten, but even to uh, attack, I mean, even physically attack, you know, people who are resisting Biden's program. Um, as though they are somehow not only a threat, but as though they are uh, uh, what's it, extremists, extremists. Uh, Biden's press secretary, uh, a lesbian woman, um, you'd think it's, it's sort of like romper room, you know, instead of uh, it's kind of a leftist romper room now with uh, these press, press uh, meetings. But uh, <clears throat> she has actually said that an extremist is someone who goes against the, the position or the opinion of the majority. Um, and yet she says that while uh, Biden's uh, presidency, so-called, is lagging so deeply in the polls, he's one of the least... Uh, popular presidents and has got the lowest approval of just about any president in recent memory, perhaps ever. I mean, down in the 30 percentiles. And, uh, and she has the nerve, the gall, um, just the, the fun fundamental dishonesty to say an extremist is one who uh, holds positions that are uh, not in accord with the, with the, uh, the majority of the people. But that would make uh, Biden himself one of the most extreme of extremists today, because his policies are themselves seen as a threat to our nation. And uh, here he is threatening anybody who would oppose him mm. and his policies. Um, so when we, when we you know, think about President, President Biden, uh, it would not be in any way uh, unfair or unjust to think of him in the category of a Pol Pot, of a Joseph Stalin, of a um, Mao Zedong, of uh, uh, any, any, any one of these uh, uh, totalitarian leaders, because that's what he aspires to. He aspires uh, to this uh, absolute control over our nation that no one can be tolerated or will be tolerated who disagrees with him. Um, so, I mean, if this isn't a totalitarian demagogue, I don't know what is. But it's funny, Father, he, uh, the, the exact things that you're stating here, this is what he accuses well, the other yeah. side of doing. He says those who support Donald Trump, they have, uh, they're divisive, they're, they're extremists, okay. and they yeah. are, um, you know, they're, they're calling for all kinds of political violence and things over there. Exactly as it was with Stalin, exactly as it was with Hitler, exactly as it was with Mao Zedong. That's exactly what they all did. That's exactly what they all do. They're still doing it. Joe Biden is doing it. Same, same exact program. And uh, the problem that the American people have today 
is that they don't have the education to enable them to put this in historical context and to understand what's going on. Many of them do see it. Most of the American people, I think, actually do see it. <clears throat> but they, they feel like they're kind of living in the novel 1980, uh, well, actually, Animal Farm. They feel, yes, they probably feel like they're living in 1984, but they, they also certainly feel as though they're actually characters in George Orwell's Animal Farm, where the pigs uh, have taken over running the farm and have employed the dogs, right, to enforce to enforce uh, their will. And the dogs will tear to shreds anybody at their command. Sick them, get them, um, who, uh, who the pigs order, order destroyed. Uh, and so if anybody hasn't read that and you want to uh, actually read about modern-day America, well, it's there in uh, story form, <laughs> right? Uh, 1984, Newspeak, uh, Big Brother, um, and, um, you know, you see Joe Biden's face comes up, come up on the screen, you know, Big Brother um, is speaking to you as he did that night in Philadelphia. And um, you, you see how the swine were able to take control of the farm and uh, terrorize all of the other farm animals and see the procedures that, that are there. It's an allegory. It, it was meant to be an allegory by Orwell. Orwell himself uh, apparently was a Fabian socialist. And it's ironic that this is exactly the program of Fabian Socialism that is happening in America today. It's gradual slide toward socialism. It wasn't uh, like a, a violent revolution like the French Revolution. Uh, it, it, it wasn't in a violent overthrow of the government and replacing it with something else. But it was this slide, this moral, moral slide down uh, gradually picking up more and more momentum. The Fabian Socialists were in favor of that. They, 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 they were more like the Mensheviks than the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks wanted violent revolution throughout the world. The Mensheviks wanted socialism to grow and grow and gradually take over. They didn't want this, this violent revolutionary movement to sweep the world. Um, but the Bolsheviks won, being the more violent of the, of the two groups. The Bolsheviks... Um, which at one time certainly were in the minority, uh, simply wiped out the Mensheviks. Uh, symbolic of that is the death of Trotsky with the ice pick, the ice axe in his head in Mexico. Um, so um, we see that the, the program of the Fabian Socialists actually has been carried out here in America, that because it has proceeded so slowly, through this cultural Marxist march through the institutions, it is all the more iron-fisted as it has taken longer and they've gotten more and more control by putting their, uh, well, I don't know what else you'd call them. I mean, Biden himself has appointed Satanists, uh, transvestites, trans people into positions even over the nuclear power of our nation. And so, I mean, he's, he's actually, every day that goes by, I mean, he's, he's, he's actually putting 
getting more and more power to control the American people. And the American people feel themselves basically having this spider web turned around them more and more, binding them more and more tightly to have the vital juices sucked out of them by the spider. And so they, they feel as though, well, where is our power? What can we do to resist this? And they don't know what to do because everyone who even voices opposition is subject to, to being attacked by the, uh, <clears throat> the snarling hounds of uh, some FBI raid on their homes. And um, the more that, more often that happens, the more they see the need and the urgency to do something, and the less they see the ability to do it about it. Uh, so as I say, the more, the, the Menshevik program and the Epivian Socialist program were less, let's say, um, precipitate. They were, they, they were more patient. Uh, the cultural Marxist idea of corrupting the institutions of a society and gradually taking complete control is going to yield a, uh, a globalist tyranny m more ironclad and more uh, savage than anything the world has ever known, than any other dictator ever dreamed of. This is, in fact, exactly what Harari, the great advisor, so-called, to the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, this is exactly what he's saying that they're actually going to gain control of the very thought processes of the people in the world. Um, so that um, they will be totally controlled and will not even think that they're totally controlled. It will not even occur to them. They'll be worse than, than puppets. Um, mindless, and they would, they, they would hope soulless puppets. Of their, of their own creation, by the way. <clears throat> so in any case, uh, it's not a very pretty picture, but when you see um, th this man who styles himself the President of the United States standing before the nation in Philadelphia, saying, it is here that we you know, wrote our Declaration of Independence, it's here that we approve the Constitution, I'm standing on the Constitution, and I'm denouncing all those who, who uh, you know, the, support this, this Donald Trump and, and uh, uh, make America great again. I denounce them as enemies of the state, right? And we have to use our power to, well, essentially crush this. And then, and then uh, they're being denounced as neo-fascists, right? Um, and so on and so forth. We see the handwriting on the wall, what's happening here. And uh, no, it is not a pretty, pretty picture. But it's the picture that is being painted not by you and not by me, being painted by uh, basically this gigantic crime syndicate known as the Democratic Party and its allies and all the leftists uh, uh, who are kind of streaming, streaming to its uh, support. Wow. The only thing we have to oppose it is the one thing that can, and that is our faith, our hope, our charity, our love for God, our allegiance to him. And that's really all that's necessary. If we would just uh, become more devoted to our Lord and our Blessed Mother, we would just um, not serve mammon so much, you know, and the things of the world, and be so preoccupied with the things of the world and the justice of the world, the goods of the world, which, I mean, right now they're threatening to take them all away from us anyway. And if we cling to them uh, ferociously, 
uh, as though that's the most important thing to us, we will lose everything. Not only the things of the world will they take away from us, they'll take away our faith, our hope, our charity, our very souls. The only way we can retain any of these things is by putting first the justice, well, as our Lord said, the kingdom of God and his justice. That's what we have to do. We have to go there and put away our attachment to the things of the world and think about what we must do to be faithful to our Lord. Uh, to, uh, to, uh, well, our Lord does not say that we, ha we cannot uh, care about the things of the world. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't have any thought about the things of the world. What he does say, he say is this, put first, right? Take first in your mind, in your life, in your allegiance, first the kingdom of God and his justice. And all these other things that you know and that God knows you need will be given to you. He will provide for you. But just put first the kingdom of God, the kingship of Christ, and his justice, and live that. And you will, you will overcome. And the reason why we're, we're in the process of losing everything is because we don't do that. We haven't done that. We have to do that now. We must not only insist on doing it ourselves, we must uh, insist our families do that. Those who are in authority must use that authority in order to cultivate in the minds and hearts of the children, especially a knowledge and a love of Jesus Christ, of the true Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic faith, of our Blessed Mother, and so on. And uh, they must, we must not compromise now, uh, again, with, well, ultimately, it's a compromise with Satan, to compromise with leftism, to compromise with immorality, it's a compromise with hell. You can't compromise with hell. Satan doesn't compromise. <clears throat> um, Tom, uh, uh, I'll think of the name, it's a senior moment here, but uh, a, a, a writer uh, in the, uh, let's say, middle 1900s uh, was talking about an example of compromise. And maybe I'm getting off the track here, excuse me, but he said a hunter went into the woods one day to, uh, well, he wanted to shoot a bear and was wanting to get a, a fur coat for winter. And he came across a bear, he got the drop on the bear with his rifle, and before he could shoot, the bear reared back and his hind legs reared up and said, oh, Mr. Hunter, please don't shoot me. He said, there's no re reason to kill me. He said, after all, all I want is a full stomach and all you want is a fur coat. Uh, let's, let's sit down and talk about this. We can negotiate this and come to a fair conclusion so that we can each get what we want. And that the hunter actually was moved by the bear's pleas that, well, yeah, actually, let's be reasonable. We should be able to compromise and negotiate this between the two of us. So the hunter put his rifle down, they sat down on the ground together, and they talked it over, and by the time they were done, uh, they both got what they came for. Uh, the bear got a full stomach, and the hunter got a full coat, fur coat. Right? You know the meaning of that, of course, right? You can't compromise with a, with a bear, with a grizzly bear. Uh, the bear has one thing on his mind, and uh, won't be satisfied with anything less. The same with, with the devil himself, you know. So uh, there is no compromise. He'll give you the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory if you'll fall down and worship him, give him your soul. We're not about to do that. 
So uh, we've got to stop this compromising of our consciences and our faith. We've got to stand firmly uh, on the integrity of our faith and our allegiance to our Lord Jesus Christ and not put up with this. But the reason why we have Rhino Republicans selling us out at every turn is because we're willing to compromise. One might say, well, they, they talk a good game and they are very convincing. And I would say, yes, but the reason why they can convince us of their lies and their deceits is because we are so willing to hear them. We are willing to compromise. And we have to stop doing that. Uh, that's what's killing us, threatening to anyway. So, uh, you know, there should be a clarion call in all of this time for absolute allegiance to the true traditional faith, recognition uh, where the faith is and where the faith is not. It is not in Francis right now. And we have to return to practicing the traditional Catholic faith in its integrity. There, there is our hope. Uh, we refer to Our Lady as our life, our sweetness, and our hope. And uh, one of the great tragedies of our day is that there are so many in the world today who call themselves and consider themselves Christians, but have no love for the Blessed Mother. That is one of the great, greatest tragedies of the Protestant Revolution. Uh, it was a revolution against our Lord. Never did he say we are saved by faith alone. Never did he say that scripture alone is the, is the, that contains all that our Lord has come to tell us that is necessary for our salvation. Uh, quite the contrary. But one of the greatest uh, tragedies of, of that whole movement, <clears throat> that whole deception, uh, is the fact that so many Christians not only invoke the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior, and not only do not honor Our Lady, but even dis despise and detest her. And that is so tragic. It is absolutely contrary to the will of God and a very great insult to our Lord. What do they go on? Well, you know, there are six times in the Gospels where Our Lady is quoted. There are six times. She is sometimes quoted very briefly. For example, the last of the six, I should say the sixth time that Our Lady is quoted is in St. John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 5. And there Our Lady says to the waiters, do whatever he tells you. Okay, Very brief and to the point. But Our Lady is also quoted at some length when at the visitation to Elizabeth, she sings the beautiful the hymn, the, the canticle of the Magnificat. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And there Our Lady is inspired to actually explain the groundwork, the, the whole um, theology, as it were, of why God has chosen her to be the mother of his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, what it is that God has done for her, that she's praising him for, not taking any credit for it, but praising him for. There Our Lady says, inspired by the Holy Ghost, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Which makes it even more astounding, astonishing, that there are those who call themselves Christians in the world today who do not call her blessed, who refuse to call her blessed, and who blame you and me for calling her blessed, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And what do they go on? What's the problem here? 
Well, remember they're Protestants, so their whole religion is built upon a protest. And what they protest is what you and I believe, notably about our Blessed Mother. I've had Protestants, those who are converting from Protestantism, tell me that um, it was much easier for them to accept the Catholic teaching on the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament than it was for them to accept the place of Mary in the Catholic religion, the devotion to Mary. They said it was actually harder for them to come to terms with our devotion to Mary than our belief that the bread and wine actually become the very body and blood of Christ at the Mass. That puzzled me. That actually struck me. Why would it be so difficult? What's wrong here? Uh, what is wrong with this perspective? Well, they actually seem to think that we somehow are putting Mary between us and our Lord and glorifying her on the same level with him or putting her above him, in a sense. They actually have this delusion. Do some Catholics do that? <coughs> well, of course. I mean, there have always been heretics who misinterpret and misrepresent the Catholic faith. We know that. Not every Catholic is necessarily, uh, you know, a doctorate in sectary theology, uh, has a doctorate in sectary theology, but they're in the Catholic faith. <coughs> there are many Catholics who, unfortunately, are very ignorant of their faith. And anybody who would exalt the Blessed Mother <coughs> above that of the Son of God, her son, uh, would be a heretic, it would not be a Catholic at all. Um, it wouldn't surprise either one of us to find that there are people who do that, right? Because of their misunderstanding. But the fact is, um, <clears throat> they point, it seems that all of those, ultimate, ultimately all of those who want to somehow uh, attack the Catholic understanding of Mary's place and Mary's role in the life and death, resurrection of Christ, and in our own spiritual lives, every one of us, all of those who want to attack that devotion we have to Mary seem to go to St. John's Gospel, chapter 2, and the account of the wedding feast of Cana. Because they think that our Lord's words to Mary on that occasion were really a matter of our Lord putting Mary in her place. You know, St. John, chapter 2, verse 3, Our Lady turns to, Mary turns to her son, Jesus, our Savior, and says to him the simple words, They have no wine. They have no wine. And our Lord's response to this seems really unmeasured. It seems it seems too ex excessive, you might say. Uh, he seems to overreact by answering Our Lady, What is that to thee and to me, woman? My hour is not yet come. What is that to me and to thee, woman? It sounds like he's telling her to mind her own business, leave him alone. <clears throat> and then he calls her woman, which sounds very, very... Uh, offensive, like an insult to her, like he's telling her off. And uh, unfortunately, you know, when they read those words, they completely misinterpret them. Um, with regard to what is that to me and to thee, woman, okay, uh, our Lord uh, says those words knowing very well what he is about to do.
that he's going to answer that observ observation that was really a request. And uh, even in calling her woman, I understand in the English language, it doesn't sound good. We would not address a woman that way. And it would be disrespectful if we did, especially our own mothers. But if you look in the Gospels and you look at all of the occasions, and there are several of these occasions where our Lord actually does address a woman as woman, every one of them is a moment of our Lord paying honor and homage to that woman. There, as I say, there are several occasions like that when a woman has shown great faith, great hope, and our Lord has addressed them as women. You can check it out. You can look, look through the gospel. You'll see exactly what I mean. Every one of those occasions is a matter of honoring that woman, even providing a miracle for her, but praising her faith. This is not a term used in English. That's the translation. When our Lord was speaking, he was speaking in Aramaic. And that title is not an attack or not an insult in the language our Lord spoke. Look in the gospel. See for yourself how he uses that address, woman. It's always with respect, to pay respect. And we know that in the case of Our Lady, it was more than that. It was more than just a, 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 a title given by men. It was a title given by God. Because in Genesis 3.15, uh, the prophecy of the woman who would be the enemy of Satan was made by God, not to Adam, not to Eve, but to Satan himself. God was speaking to Lucifer, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. And he's saying that there will come at a woman in the world who will be your enemy. This is a prime reason why we believe in the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. Because if this woman, whom we now know the identity of, because we know the identity of her son, Jesus, he is, he is the one, definitely, right? This offspring that our Lord is, that God is prophesying. And his mother, we know, Mary of Nazareth, is designated by God himself to be the enemy of Satan. Now, what is it that makes one an ally of Satan but sin? Sin makes a person an ally of Satan. Sin makes a person join the revolution of Satan himself. This woman would not be Satan's ally. If she were a sinner, if she were conceived in sin, she would have been his ally. But this woman prophesied by God the Father to Lucifer himself in the garden was not to be his ally, but she would be his enemy. And so we understand that this woman would come into the world not as an ally of Satan, but as an enemy of Satan, and would remain so throughout her entire life. She would be, from beginning to end, the enemy of Satan. She would never be, therefore, an ally by sin, and join him in his own sinful rebellion against God. That's just one of the indications, but a very powerful indication, of who this woman is, and the fact that she was sinless from the first inst instant of her life. And I know, again, Protestants will argue against that, and they will say, well, you know, it says in, in the Bible, St. Paul says, in Adam all have sinned. But they would readily agree 
that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made man, had a soul, and Jesus Christ, as man, did not sin in Adam. His soul did not have original sin. And it makes perfect sense if, as St. Paul says, Jesus Christ is the new Adam, that he also be created in a garden, as it were, which is absolutely ordered and perfect. And so we see Our Lady as kind of a, a garden of Eden in which the new Adam would, would come to life and be created. And in that garden of Eden, there was no evil when God created. You understand what I mean? Yes. But we also see that in the Old Testament, there were great figures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and so on. They were justified from sins before Jesus died on the cross. Another argument that Protestants use against Our Lady, how could she could have, could have been justified or, quote-unquote, sanctified? They don't really believe in sanctification, but how could they be, anyone have that justification before Jesus died on the cross? And yet they will admit to you readily that figures of the Old Testament who lived hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross were justified by their faith and their hope and their love for the coming Redeemer. There is absolutely nothing about the belief in the Immaculate Conception of Mary that contradicts divine revelation. Quite the contrary. It is a kind of fulfillment of what we know from divine revelation. So, you know, we see Our Lady as having a very special place by virtue of her vocation to be the mother of the Savior. Our Lord wasn't insulting her. He was prepared to do exactly what she wanted him to do. But he, he gave that steaming protest in order to make something clear. And he wasn't making it clear to her. He was making it clear to Tom Negley. He was making it clear to Father Jenkins. He was making it clear to everybody else in the world who would read that Gospel of St. John. What our Lord was making clear by what he said. Something that Mary already understood. He said, my hour is not yet come. And time and time again, our Lord would speak of his hour. And the hour that he spoke of was a, a moment designated by the Father for him to take some action that would start him on the road, in this case, on the road to Calvary. Because by this miracle that our Lord was called upon to work, by no less than Our Lady herself, he would actually manifest his power. That's what the word epiphany means. This is the third epiphany. He manifested his power, and the gospel says his disciples believed in him. They saw divine power within him. And that he, remember now, just a week before, he was in the, in the, in the desert, in the desert fasting. The devil said, if you're hungry, if you're the son of God, Turn these stones into bread to feed yourself. He wouldn't do it. But here, just a week later, he's at the wedding feast of Cana, and Our Lady is asking him now to churn, turn the dirty wash water of the guests' feet, the washing of their feet, into wine. And uh, he tells her that it, this miracle somehow concerns this hour or moment in his life. And it really does, because we see Our Lady understood exactly what he meant. She knew what that hour was. 
She knew exactly what his intention was. That's why she turned to the waiters and said, do whatever he tells you. And uh, they obeyed her in obeying him, actually. It shows the influence, the, the power that she had. And so uh, we know that the consequence of that, our Lord worked that miracle, turned the water into wine, and it was the fine wine with which they actually concluded the wedding feast. That was how our Lord began his public life. It was that they requested Mary. How can one fail to see that? How can one cling to this, uh, this disregard for her or even this ill regard for her in the face of what our Lord actually did? Beginning his public life, beginning his march to Calvary at her request. How can one fail to understand the love that motivated her in actually knowing very well what she was doing and starting her own sons, as it were, march to Calvary, that she was willing to do this because this was the will of the Father. And it was being done at her request. It was given to her to make that request. And she made the request, for, not only for her own soul, but for your soul and mine too, because she knew we needed him to die for us on the cross. She asked him to begin that whole process of his public life that would end on the cross. What, what a mother's heart Our Lady has, not only for our Lord, for us too. What a mother's heart Our Lady must have to make that request on our behalf. Because her heart was pierced by the sword even then, right? So in any case, you know, we have to understand clearly what our Lord is telling us in the gospel, what he's telling us when he said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, that Mary is blessed because she, in her humility, kept the word of God perfectly. She was the woman who was the enemy of Satan and never his ally, perfectly faithful to Almighty God. She was the new Eve. It is for that that God gave her the vocation to be the mother of the Savior, and all of the other privileges, including her immaculate conception, were given to her because she was willing to do that. She was willing to unite her life with our Lord, knowing full well what lay ahead. And she was willing to shoulder that cross. She was willing to, as it were, shoulder that, that Lord and Savior, her Son, who would himself shoulder the cross for us. That's a beautiful thing, wonderful thing. No wonder that Almighty God has now placed uh, the course of the world's history so much in her, in her care that God would be sending her. In the past, God sent prophets. God sent uh, uh, people, you know, even from heaven itself to speak to us, to warn us. But in our own day, we know that God has actually sent Our Lady at, at Lourdes, at La Salette, at Fatima. And she's taken this personal interest in us, all mankind. In any case, I know I've gone on quite a bit here, but I think it's very important for us to understand, as I, as I ask everyone to please embrace the traditional Catholic faith and practice it completely with the traditional Mass of the Church, the traditional Latin Roman Rite of the Mass, and nothing else. Do not accept uh, the, the New Order. Do not accept it. It's the creation of Freemasons uh, to substitute and try to eradicate the traditional, the true Mass from the faith. Don't give that up. Find the traditional Mass offered by a true traditional priest, attend it faithfully. Receive our Lord lovingly in Holy Communion. 
practice the entirety of the faith. And in, in order to do that, you have to have a devotion to our Blessed Lady. You have to have devotion to her and love her. That's what God wants of us now. And I know that's your closing message, so I expect that I'll turn that over to you as to what exactly uh, we should be doing right now when it comes to our Blessed Father. Okay. Well, Father, thank you for that. Thank you for everything that you do, and um, thanks for your time tonight. Oh, absolutely, Tim. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.